There are so many religions in the world. How are they similar and how are they different? We need to know. The culturally correct view is to blend them all together as equally relevant and legitimate. But is that true? Prior to becoming a follower of Jesus, your host, Mike Shreve, was an avid seeker of truth, exploring many paths to spirituality. One of his passions now is to help bridge the gap so that others can discover the true light, which gives light to everyone entering the world. Now, here's Mike Shreve revealing the true light. The title of this episode of Revealing the True Light references a very controversial issue. Does the Bible teach reincarnation? Another title you might use for this program is this, which is right, reincarnation or resurrection. We're going to cover some very interesting territory. Many New Agers and those who embrace Far Eastern religions believe the Bible does teach reincarnation. And so did I in 1970 when I was a teacher of yoga at four universities and I ran a Kundalini Yoga ashram in Tampa, Florida. I firmly and sincerely believe that certain passages in the Bible that I'm going to talk about reveal the hidden esoteric message of reincarnation that was not blatant in the Bible, but certainly present in the Bible. At least I believed that 50 years ago. In fact, I told the man who won me to the Lord, Kent Sullivan, that if there was one belief I could not give up if I became a follower of Jesus, it would be the doctrine of reincarnation. However, after I was born again, after the Lord Jesus Christ came into my heart, it totally revolutionized my belief system. And now I believe in just one life and the resurrection. However, I sympathize with those who embrace my former worldview. Now let me go into the explanation. Most Far Eastern religionists cling to the concept of reincarnation, though even in India, this doctrine has been strongly disputed. Basically, it involves the theory that the soul life of every human being evolves from an inanimate state to plant life, and then to animal life, and then to numerous human forms on its journey toward perfection, ultimate enlightenment, and godhood. Now, in Hinduism, those incarnations multiply up above a million. Think of that. Many philosophies, religions, and modern New Age groups have held up this banner. Even Plato, the revered Greek philosopher, believed in it. And I quote, The soul is immortal and is clothed successively in many bodies. Unquote. Some reincarnationists teach that during transmigration, the soul life can shuttle back and forth between a human and an animal and even at times a mineral state. Others believe in only a progressive evolution of the soul. Disagreements do exist concerning the details of this doctrine among those who adhere to it. 
And that in itself shows that it should be inspected more carefully. If those who embrace reincarnation cannot agree on the fundamental principles, then we need to decipher the reasons for belief in this particular idea, especially when people reference the Bible. I realize that sensitive people behold the anguish of a suffering human race, the heartbreaking disparity between the rich and the poor, the healthy and the sick, the intelligent and the mentally handicapped members of the human family. Often, in their quest for a meaningful answer, reincarnation seems to be the only fair and plausible way of giving all people an equal chance at a fulfilling existence. If individuals are born crippled, demented, or surrounded with abject poverty, it explains why they are suffering for sins committed in a previous existence. And it offers hope. Having paid off their karmic debt, they can then be born into a future life offering better conditions and better opportunities. So under the banner of reincarnation, the blatant inequities that abound in this world appear to fall into a sensible order. Instead of negative things happening by random chance, the theory of reincarnation offers a worldview that seems to fit the puzzle pieces together, penetrating the chaotic and unpredictable with a multifaceted system of causes and effects. For these reasons, I wholeheartedly embrace the idea of reincarnation simultaneous with my involvement in yoga back in 1970, as I mentioned. However, after becoming a Christian, I became firmly convinced that was a wrong belief. After a thorough search of the teachings of Jesus, I discovered he definitely taught only one incarnation of the soul, one life in this world. He also predicted that at the conclusion of this era, there would be a literal resurrection of the righteous, then later on, a resurrection of the unrighteous. And so this is a part of Jesus's teaching. Now, I often instructed my yoga students that Jesus taught reincarnation. Sometimes it was veiled in the things that he spoke, in the parables he gave, and sometimes it was very clear and blatant in the way he expressed it. But once you really look at the Bible under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and once you connect the dots and correct exegesis and unveiling the meaning of certain passages, there's no way anyone can believe that Jesus taught reincarnation. For instance, let me give you a passage of Scripture where he definitely taught resurrection. John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29, he said, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves shall hear his voice, speaking of himself, and shall come forth those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have practiced evil to the resurrection of condemnation. That's just as irrefutable and undeniable as it can get. 
he definitely said, those that are in the graves shall hear his voice. However, Jesus also validated this teaching of the resurrection by arising victorious over death himself. He was the prototype. He was the example for all the rest of us by conquering death and by emerging from the grave in the same physical body that had been lacerated and beaten and crucified on a cross. I believe he probably looked more like a piece of meat in a butcher shop than a human being. And yet he was resurrected and came forth from the grave in the same body, though a higher spiritual form of the same body. It was a resurrected body. It was a body that would enable him to transition between an earthly realm and a heavenly realm when he appeared to his disciples and then disappeared after sharing certain truths with them. So yes, it was a physical body because you have to have a physical body to function in a physical world, but it was of a higher nature and could transition between the heavenly world and the earthly realm. Okay? Now, in comparison, look at some other religious leaders. Muhammad suffered an untimely death. Some say that he was poisoned by one of his wives, and he's still in the grave. Mahavira, the founder of Jainism, died of starvation, and he's still in the grave. Buddha apparently died of food poisoning at the age of 80, and yet he is still in the grave. According to legend, Krishna expired of an arrow piercing his foot, but devotees believe his body was all spirit anyway, which is described in the Sanskrit word sat-sit-ananda, so he never really died physically anyway. It was just the appearance of death, which is something the Hindus call Lila, which is a kind of divine game. It's the delusion that fills this realm. On the contrary, as I just mentioned, Jesus' resurrection was literal, physical, and powerful. Furthermore, the Bible states that Christians have been begotten again to a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He said, because I live, you shall live also. He's titled the firstborn from the dead in Colossians chapter 1, verse 18. In other words, we will rise from the dead after the pattern of the firstborn son of God. He became a living witness of what will happen to all those who place their hope in him. At the end of this age, when Jesus returns, those who have trusted in him as their Savior will either be resurrected if they are in the grave or if they've passed away, or they will be translated if they are alive when the coming of the Lord takes place. And translation is the transformation of our mortal bodies into immortal form. How will this happen? Concerning the dead, God will use whatever substance remains of their previously inhabited mortal bodies to create glorious immortal forms. Even if all that remains is infinitesimally small, even molecularly small, because God doesn't need the entire 
corpse to work with. He didn't need much to work with when he formed Adam in the beginning, just a handful of dust. He could have done it otherwise. He could have created Adam with the spoken word, but he chose to use dust, the dust of the earth. And he could speak new bodies for our indwelling just with the power of his word. But he doesn't choose to do that. And if God chooses to use some of the substance of our former bodies, then that's God's choice. And I just have to trust in his wisdom. God will change our flesh, bone, and blood bodies into glorious, radiant, infinite forms in one divine moment. The Bible said, I speak to you a mystery. We shall not all sleep but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. Well, someone may ask, why is this necessary? Certainly God could do it another way, but he doesn't choose to. Thomas Akempis once insisted, were the works of God readily understandable by human reason, they would be neither wonderful nor unspeakable. Sometimes God's purposes may seem logical to us, and sometimes they may seem illogical. But who can question God's methods? Now we get to something really important. Many Far Eastern and New Age groups teach that the ultimate end of an advanced soul is merging with the oversoul becoming a formless part of the Godhead, an infinite existence beyond all distinction and thought. And those who believe this believe that ultimate reality is an impersonal cosmic energy or level of consciousness. Is that progress? I would dare to say it's not. It would not be progress for a rose to digress and become a rock. Neither is it progress for a personal being to digress and become one with an impersonal force. Again, that's not progression, that's digression. But many believe that that is the ultimate state of being. It's termed samadhi in Hinduism, final absolute bliss. Buddhism interprets this ultimate state somewhat differently, calling it nirvana which is a word that means blowing out, as in the blowing out of a candle. And this metaphor, this picture, implies the annihilation of desire and suffering at the blowing out or the cessation of personal existence. This state could only be described as depersonalization, In other words, it involves final absorption into an impersonal, formless, beingless state of what Buddhists view as final oneness with ultimate reality. Contrary to the assertions of a lot of New Age thinkers, Jesus never taught this concept of reincarnation. Neither did the early church. And I know some of them reference spurious books that supposedly should be in the Bible but have been left out, but I firmly adhere to the canon of Scripture as it is, the 66 books of the Bible that Protestants use as the Word of God, not these books that are questionable and of questionable sources. Anyway, 
listen to what John the Apostle said concerning the second coming of Jesus. He said, when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. He didn't say when we reach the end of the evolution of our spiritual journey. He said when he is revealed, when Jesus comes back again, when he rends the heavens, when he descends with all the angels and the glory of heaven with him, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And it happens in a moment. It's not something that happens on an individual level at the demiss of that individual who passes into a higher spiritual state. It's going to happen in mass to multiplied millions who have put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. No wonder Paul the Apostle taught, and I quote from Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. We eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body. He didn't say we'll evolve into higher spiritual planes with spiritual bodies. He said he will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able to subdue all things to himself. Our ultimate end, therefore, will not be formlessness, but the obtaining of a glorified and immortal form eternally. Jesus promised a final metamorphosis in Matthew chapter 13, verse 43, when he said, The righteous will shine forth like the sun in the kingdom of our Father. Now think of that. If you shine forth like the sun, you're not an omnipresent spirit blending in with the oversoul. You have a definite point of existence. Now let me go to what I used to try and prove that Jesus taught when I was a yoga teacher in 1970. Like other yoga teachers, I often tried to lend support to the doctrine of reincarnation by using biblical references. We claimed that Jesus taught John the Baptist was the reincarnation of Elijah. However, when all the scriptures relating to this particular subject are blended, it becomes clear that the Bible communicates something quite different. The message conveyed is that John the Baptist bore the same anointing of the Holy Spirit that Elijah bore. Though he possessed a similar calling, he was not another incarnation of that great Old Testament prophet. Besides, the Old Testament records the prophet Elijah being bodily translated to heaven. He never lost his original body. So how could he be incarnated into a second body? Moreover, when Elijah appeared on the Mount of Transfiguration with Moses and Jesus. Now think of this. Peter, James, and John were there. They were asleep on the top of this mountain. They wake up and they see Moses and Elijah and Jesus between them transfigured, shining like the sun. And when they saw Moses and Elijah, they recognized them as being Moses and Elijah. Had Elijah just prior to that been incarnated as John the Baptist, the disciples would have been very confused. 
as to the actual identity of the radiant person standing before them. Because they remembered what John the Baptist looked like, certainly they could not remember what Elijah looked like, so they would relate more to the appearance of John the Baptist. And if he appeared with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, then they would have said it's Moses and John the Baptist, instead of identifying him as Elijah. Now let's go to another passage of Scripture. In Luke chapter 1, verse 17, the angel Gabriel foretold that John the Baptist would come, watch this wording carefully, and I quote from Scripture, in the spirit and power of Elijah. Let me give you the whole passage. It's Luke chapter 1, verses 13 through 17. Gabriel said to Zechariah, your prayer is heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. In other words, he will go before the Son of God in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, the angel Gabriel was actually referencing an Old Testament prophecy from Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. God describes the last days and from the beginning of the church until now is the last days, according to biblical revelation, because this is the last era. It's the era of grace, where prior to this, there were different eras or different ways God had of dealing with humankind. But the Bible says in the last days, God speaking, Malachi 4, verse 5 and 6, he said, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. And so when you couple those two things together, the angel Gabriel saying that this child of Zechariah and Elizabeth will go before the Messiah in the spirit and power of Elijah. And when you match that to Malachi chapter 4, where God speaks of this coming prophet and says, I will send you Elijah, the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, then it seems very logical that John the Baptist was Elijah. But let's go back in the Bible and find out with biblical language what that really meant. Because some non-Christians who read that passage could readily interpret it as an announcement that Elijah's reincarnation took place in John the Baptist. However, when we go back and closely inspect traditional biblical language, we find that Elisha, the prophet who walked in his calling directly after Elijah, asked for and received a double portion of the quote-unquote spirit that was upon Elijah. 
Did that mean that Elijah was reincarnated as Elisha? Of course not. They lived at the same time. It simply meant that the manifestation of God's Spirit, which rested upon Elijah, was increased in Elisha's life. And let me take you to the exact passage of Scripture. It's 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 9. And listen to what happened right before Elijah was carried away in a whirlwind and a fiery chariot into the heavenly realm. Now, Elijah took his mantle, rolled it up, and struck the water, and it was divided this way and that so that the two of them crossed over on dry ground. And so it was when they had crossed over that Elijah said to Elisha, Ask, what may I do for you before I am taken away from you? And Elisha said, Please let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. And Elijah said, You have asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if you see me when I am taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if not, it shall not be so. Very plainly there, when he asked for a double portion of the spirit of Elijah, it did not mean that Elijah's actual human spirit came to dwell within Elisha. It meant that the covering, the mantle, the endowment with power, the power of the Holy Spirit that rested upon Elijah would be transferred to Elisha and doubled in its manifestation. Now, let's go back to what the angel Gabriel said to Zacharias when he was burning incense in the holy place in the temple and had this angelic visitation. He told him about this coming child that Elizabeth, his barren wife, would have and said he will go before him, speaking of the Messiah, he will go before the Messiah in the spirit and power of Elijah. In other words, he's saying that he will have a similar anointing, a similar calling, just like Elijah turned the hearts of the Jewish people away from idolatry, from the worship of false deities, back to true religion. So John the Baptist would turn the hearts of the people away from a corrupt religious system to the true understanding of the revelation that had been imparted to them from the patriarchs and from the judges and from the leaders of Israel. He would turn them back to true religion. It did not mean that John the Baptist was Elijah reincarnated. As a yoga teacher back in 1970, I often reference something Jesus said. He was talking about John the Baptist, and he said, Assuredly, I say unto you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. But he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. That passage of Scripture seemed to validate that Jesus was an advocate of the doctrine of reincarnation. He said, if you can receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. But that doesn't necessarily mean 
that he taught reincarnation, it was his way of saying that John the Baptist mysteriously was the fulfillment of this ancient prophecy that Elijah would come back. They probably thought he would come back the way he left, that he would come in a fiery chariot. He would manifest with angels all around him in a supernatural way, but it came instead in the anointing, the presence of the Spirit, the power of the Spirit that flowed out of John the Baptist as he preached repentance to Israel. So Jesus was saying, it may not look like it to you, but this is Elijah who was to come. He did not validate the doctrine of reincarnation by making that statement. He merely said that that prophecy was fulfilled metaphorically, not literally. One of the strongest and plainest Bible statements concerning this issue of reincarnation versus resurrection is Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. that says, it is appointed for men to die once. You can't get any more plain than that. It is appointed for men to die once. And if we only die once, then it's logical to say we only live once in a mortal form in this world. I must admit that I still struggle with the inequities that abound in this world. Life does not always appear fair, but I have learned to trust in the wisdom of a loving Heavenly Father who is fair, who is just, and who understands all things. So once eternity dawns, surely our questions will be sufficiently answered, but until then, we trust in the Word of God. There's great pain that wrecks the inhabitants of this planet, but we know a Savior who feels that pain as if it's his own. The Bible said he feels our infirmities. Thank God for that. And if you turn to him and give him your life and surrender your heart to him and ask him to be Lord of your life and to live in your heart, you can be born again and you can know without a shadow of a doubt of an absolute certainty that there is just one life. But after this life, there is an eternity in heaven that will await you. And that's the most important issue. I urge you to go to my website, thetruelight.net, and look at some of the articles there that deal with the idea of reincarnation, including one that covers 13 reasons I no longer believe in reincarnation. Also, there are videos on that subject, interviews I've done. So if you want to explore this subject in even greater depth, go to thetruelight.net. That's www.thetruelight.net. And while you're there, download a free booklet of my testimony called The Highest Adventure, Encountering God. If you have any questions, shoot me an email and I'll do everything I can to help you. Thank you for joining Mike Shreve today on Revealing the True Light. And thank you for opening your mind and your heart to the truth. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, cpnshows.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss new episodes. You can explore the beliefs of many world religions more deeply by ordering Mike Shree's book titled In Search of the True Light. We also invite you to visit our website, thetruelight.net, and sign up to be part of our global internet family.